You're listening to a free Lanyap edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. When I hear about really ambitious transmission projects, I wonder if the advocates have thought about the potential for high penetration of distributed resources. Things are getting more and more dynamic. The grid is shifting and changing like constantly. It's getting much more distributed. For May 3rd, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. So-called virtual power plants, or VPPs, are all the rage these days. Broadly defined, they consist of distributed energy resources, often referred to as DERs, or as I prefer to call them, customer resources, that can be grouped or aggregated and controlled together in various ways that benefit both the customers who own them and the power grid. The kinds of resources that might participate in a VPP are numerous and varied, including things like EVs and chargers, heat pumps, water heaters, various home appliances, space heating and cooling equipment or HVAC equipment, batteries, rooftop solar, industrial equipment, and more. And the ways they can participate are also varied, from avoiding consuming power when it's expensive and limited, to consuming power when it's cheap and abundant, to providing power back to the grid when supplies are limited, and to merely moderating their power consumption in specific ways that benefit the grid. And I'll just say right up front here that for this reason, I don't like the term virtual power plant, because a power plant only generates power and sends it onto the grid, and doesn't do any of those other things that these aggregations of customer resources can do, including consuming power. But VPP has become part of the industry jargon now, and it seems we're stuck with it, so for the sake of clarity and consistency, we'll be using it in this episode. VPPs are also highly variable in their size, which can range from dozens or even thousands of devices, and in the types of customers and devices that can participate in them, which can range from residences to businesses to factories and even to vehicles of all types. To be sure, VPPs aren't new. In one form or another, they've been around for the better part of 40 years. In fact, we've discussed various aspects of integrating customer resources in numerous previous episodes of this show, including episodes 27, 39, 71, 94, 134, 139, 146, 150, 157, and 187. For those who have been paying attention to the expanding role of DERs, VPPs are old news. But now there's growing interest in integrating more of these resources into the power grid and leveraging their flexibility to enable greater shares of variable renewables on the grid and to optimize the grid's capacity so that it can do more with less. According to a leading recent study, VPPs can help avoid $17 billion of annual power sector expenditure in 2030. As you'll hear today, a handful of VPPs and programs to support VPPs have been launched in the U.S. The U.S. Department of Energy is also exploring ways to accelerate the deployment and integration of VPPs. So today we're privileged to be joined by none other than Jigar Shah, Director of the Loan Programs Office at the U.S. Department of Energy. Fans of this show will probably know Jigger best as the former co-host of the Energy Gang podcast, but Jigger has a long and storied resume, including co-founder and president of Generate Capital, founding CEO of the Carbon War Room, and founder of Sun Edison. He's been a longtime fan and supporter of this show, and I'm very pleased to finally have him join us. 
in addition to offering his vision of a much expanded role for VPPs on the power grid and why he thinks the sector is ready to scale up, Jigger will share how his office is making financing available to support the adoption of VPP-enabled DERs under the Title 17 Clean Energy Financing Program. And because Jigger is with the Department of Energy, sharing information that should be accessible to everyone, we decided to make this one of our occasional Lanyap shows. As longtime listeners know, we promise our paying subscribers two shows a month or 24 shows a year. But we actually produce a show every two weeks, which makes 26 shows a year. We call the two extra shows a year our Lanyap. That's what they call a little something extra in New Orleans. And we run them in front of the paywall so that subscribers and non-subscribers alike can enjoy our full shows a couple of times a year. So, non-subscribers, now you can see what you've been missing. We hope you'll join us as a full subscriber and start enjoying our full shows, which are typically 90 minutes long and not just the first 15 minutes or so that we make available in our free abridged shows. Annual memberships that give you full access to our complete catalog of over 200 unabridged shows are just $60 a year. Just go to our website at energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button to join. Then in the news segment, we'll see how the UK is planning to employ virtual power plants to reduce its own power generation requirements. We'll see what prices for lithium, cobalt, and other metals are telling us about their potential impact on the energy transition, as we discussed in episode 194. We'll review some additional recent data on the shale story we covered in episode 191. We'll review the story about the corruption trial of Larry Householder in Ohio, and we'll consider the latest development in the story of the Texas blackout of February 2021, which we discussed in episode 145. And now, our conversation with Jigger Shah, recorded March 1st, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jigger, to the Energy Transition Show. Wow. This is amazing. <laughs> After listening to this extraordinary show for so many years, I get to be on. I know, right? And after listening to you on your show on the Energy <laughs> Gang for so many years, it's about time we brought those ends together. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, look, let's just dive right in because there's so much material to cover here. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, VPPs have been around for the better part of 40 years, to my recall. In fact, I would date it back to the first energy service companies or ESCOs that did things like energy efficiency retrofits on commercial buildings and then used energy system controls to minimize the building's utility bills while providing flexible demand response services to their host utilities. And in fact, I found a 2011 presentation by the president of the National Association of Energy Service Companies, that's the National Association of ESCOs, to the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that referred to ESCOs as, quote, energy efficiency power plants, which <laughs> clearly sounds like a precursor to today's virtual power plants to me. But you have at least a long memory of this stuff as I do, Jigger. So how would you describe that history? Yeah, look, I think that as you and I have talked about for many years, none of the ideas that are going to reshape the way in which the grid operates are new. When I first moved to Washington, D.C. in 1996, Pepco offered me, I think it was like $8 a month to be able to control my air conditioning system. That is also a virtual power plant. I remember right after that, there was a company that had created a sleeve or a collar around your meter socket right. to be able to control your diesel generator and to remotely control all the diesel generators in the country to turn them on in the event of a uh, emergency, right? So I remember that. So I don't think that this stuff is new, but I do think that it is fair to say that we currently still run the grid in a one-directional way. We don't really run the grid 
in two directions. And when you think about what Pat Wood did in 2005 at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, you know, our good friend Chris Cook worked with his colleague at Solar Turbines, and they put in a safe harbor of 15% of all distribution circuits could backfeed. You could backfeed up to 15% of the entire circuit's capacity without really getting any permission that that was safe. Uh Uh-huh. But even today, I'd say a lot of utilities say, well, can we backfeed a single kilowatt hour? It creates all these issues. We created that safe harbor back in 2004 under Pat Wood. So I feel like a lot of the fundamental foundation pieces have been in place for the better part of, let's call it, 19 years. Yeah. And we still are fighting these battles. And what's different today is I do think that for the first time in 20 years, we believe that massive amounts of load growth is coming. And as a result, we have some big decisions to make in front of us. And so all of that history is informing how we make these big decisions in front of us. Right. And I think it's fair to say that the Department of Energy and its national labs have likewise had an evolving view of VPPs. So could you review that evolution for us a little bit? Like, how has the perspective on VPPs changed at the DOE? So David Nemzow, who used to run the Alliance to Save Energy and just most recently ran the Building Technologies Office and now has joined my office in the technology group to help evaluate our loans, was a big person behind the Building Technology Office's work under the Grid Interactive Efficient Buildings work at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. And and when you think about all the businesses, Audrey Zibelman, who led the REV process in New York, had a company that was supposed to do these sort of buildings as power plants, Veridity. And so there's been a lot of efforts that have been funded by DOE early stage as R&D for open software, hardware, all that stuff. I mean, we've certainly done a tremendous amount of R&D out of the Office of Electricity, integrating DERs. The Solar Energy Technologies Office has been a part of this. But I would say that in general, that whole effort has largely been one of sort of an active nature where things are actively being turned on, communications is actively occurring, there's some sort of big screen that is capturing all that information in one place and all this cool stuff is happening. I think today we're thinking about something a little bit different for version 1.0 and then we could get into that level of sophistication in version 3 or 4.0. But I think version 1.0 is really the fact that you have so many devices that are app-enabled now. You really can shut off the charging on your car from an app on your phone. And the same thing's true with your Nest thermostat. The same thing's true with the battery that you've added to your Solar Plus battery storage. And so now we're in a place where really just by turning on and off loads, you can really change capital flows and electron flows in ways that are meaningful at the distribution circuit level. And so I'd say the virtual power plant definition for us really is moving towards the fact that we need the same level of dexterity and demand that we currently only enjoy with supply. And that by doing that, you're talking about dramatically reducing the integration costs of all this additional load growth from 
you know, electric vehicles, heat pumps, all this other stuff. Right. And so I'm hearing two horns of the argument there, essentially, as to why DOE is newly interested in VPPs here. I mean, I think the one is that we've got a lot of new load coming because we're electrifying everything as a part of the energy transition, and we have to figure out how to manage that and accommodate that new load in a smart way. And then the other thing is that there's just a lot of devices that are enabled to do this kind of flexible demand. Would you say those are kind of the main ideas behind DOE's interest in them? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the other big thing I would say is that the grid is the largest machine in the world that got the Academy of Sciences Award for the greatest engineering marvel of the 20th century. But it's the largest machine in the world that doesn't get optimized for utilization. Right. Every other machine that costs a trillion dollars to build is optimized for uptime and utilization. We have allowed the utilization of our grid and our system to go from probably 70% utilization back in the pre-air conditioning days of the 1970s to about 40% utilization today. And it is time for us to start optimizing for capacity utilization. Like we've already paid for all this stuff. Why not use it at a higher capacity factor? That's an interesting point. I've seen some grossed up FRED data that sort of aggregated the capacity factor of the entire grid as a whole, including generation T&D. But I wondered like which parts of those are the unoptimized bits? Or is it the whole thing? Well, I'm really focused mostly on the grid, so the T and the D. Okay. I'm not so focused on generation because some of the generation obviously is made to only run 80 hours a year or something, peaker plants or whatever it is for emergency situations. And we could talk about that on, I'm sure, several other episodes. But, but I do think that we went from around $25 billion of investment into T and D and the broader capex of the utilities in the year 2000 to almost $100 billion today. Hmm. And so we are investing... And we're still transmission constrained. Well, we are clearly transmission constrained for the end state in 2035. I would argue that we are not as transmission constrained as everybody thinks we are today. Well, we've had a lot of stories about backed up queues for interconnection and all sorts of stuff. So where would you dispute that? Well, like in general, the way that those transmission queues work is that we give you allocation of transmission so that you can use that allocation at any time that you want to use it. I think if you practiced, quote unquote, active curtailment of resources, then we could fit way more resources on the current grid today. And then you would need long duration energy storage or, mm. or lithium ion batteries to dump power into when you were curtailed. And so, mm, mm-hmm. so that you had a place to put that stuff for the quote unquote 80 hours or 180 hours a year that that might be applicable. But the way that the grid is operated is when you're giving allocation of grid resources, that is your allocation and you always have the ability to use it, even if you're only using it 21% of the time with a gotcha. solar asset or 40% with a wind asset. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So... You see a lot of load coming onto the grid that we need to accommodate and figure out how to shoehorn it into as much of the existing footprint as possible. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing from your perspective in terms of like heat pumps, batteries, new load from EVs, et cetera. Yeah. So I think you start by the fact that consumers want this load growth. They want five gigawatts of newly added 
EV capacity in 2022 yep. with roughly 6.6 kilowatt sort of level two chargers in garages or dedicated places for them to park. But then you separately yep. have heat pumps, which have been a fixture for most of the country in the southeast and other places, and certainly for new home construction. But now increasingly retrofits are also adding in heat pumps because they do double duty. They not only replace your air conditioner, but also can do a lot of your heating. Right. And so you've got a lot of that coming in too. And that added load is not necessarily summertime load because you always had the air conditioning, but it's added wintertime load because before you put in a heat pump, it was a fossil fuel or something like that. You're separately getting a gigawatt of home batteries added in 2022. And when you look at Puerto Rico itself, you probably have over 40 grid events that occurred last year mm -hmm. where you had brief brownouts or other things that occurred, mostly because of generation shortfalls. Right. And you have the ability to connect about, I think it's like 30,000 power walls are in Puerto Rico yeah. But they're not paid to participate in helping to prevent those brownouts. You just saw the first contract get signed by by Sunrun, but the vast majority of those power walls are actually owned by Sonova. And so you don't actually have full integration of those power walls, even though they're there in people's houses, paid for, and people would <laughs> love for them to be used to provide better electricity services and better resiliency. Yeah. And then the last thing you have is you've got thermostats being added, about one gigawatt every month of the thermostats, because each thermostat manages between a half a kilowatt and 3.5 kilowatts of load, depending on how big your air conditioning system is, and some of that small commercial as well. So I think I count right. a lot of that small commercial stuff in there too. And so that's roughly $10 billion a month of investment that's occurring into people's homes through these sort of app-enabled appliances, including electric vehicles. I mean, I think it's an extraordinary amount of money, and that number is going to go up every month. That's a great point. And, you know, I've never heard anybody quite put the picture together that way. $10 billion a month, that does focus the mind, doesn't it? And it's an extraordinary thing. And 43% of it's low-moderate income. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they get charged 30% interest because they don't have the money when something breaks. Right. And they go down the bodega to get something. The bodega charges them $400 too much for the refrigerator or the appliance or whatever it is. And then they separately get 12% interest financing. So when you add the extra costs that they paid for that they shouldn't have paid for and the 12% interest, they're paying 30% interest. And so you have a way for us to intervene right there to help people just by getting them affordable financing for the appliances that they have to replace. Right. Uh, financing for appliances is a key part of all this picture. And I think we're going to talk a little more about that later on in this conversation. But I just, for the moment, want to stay focused on the grid side of this. If you have these gigawatts of new load or demand for capacity, however you want to construe that, coming onto the grid, it sounds like you're saying we can't plan to build out the TND infrastructure to meet all these new distributed assets the same way we did for, let's say, accommodating air conditioning a few decades ago. Yeah, that's right. Remember, when we accommodated air conditioning, this was around 1979 to 1989 was when most of these investments got made. And back then, most of the utilities were fully regulated. They were soup to nuts. And permitting processes were easier. They were able to like increase a lot of the capacity on their own. And they built a lot of natural gas generators that had low capacity utilization. 
to meet those requirements. Today, if you were to try to do that, it would cause you to have even lower capacity utilization rates for all of this new capacity. And it just doesn't make any sense because we have all this excess capacity sitting in all the distribution grids because every single home has the ability to use 100 amps, 200 amps, 400 amps of service. And the grid is built out for them to be able to do that. So really what we need to do is just to make sure that everything isn't on at the exact same time. And frankly, it's not much of an inconvenience to people because so many of these loads are really flexible. When you think about EVs, most people who charge their cars, they plug in for 11 hours, 12 hours. They come home from school, they come home from work, they plug in, and then they don't unplug it until seven, eight o'clock the next morning. And it only charges for an hour and a half during that entire plugged in time. It doesn't matter to them when it charges. Right. And the same kind of flexibility exists in water heaters and HVAC systems and all kinds of stuff. And we're going to talk in a minute about the importance of utility tariffs and rates. But if you're on a favorable rate that would support this kind of activity, you can pre-cool or preheat your house by drawing power when it's cheap in the morning and then avoid using power in the late afternoon when the grid is constrained and prices are high on a time of use rate or something like that, right? And so there's a lot of flexibility on all the loads you're talking about. That's exactly right. But I do think we want to be honest with ourselves around what it's going to take. When you think about what Europe has gone through, over the last 12 months with their crisis. They absolutely brought in a lot of LNG trains to help meet some of the natural gas that they were denied out of Russia. But they also did an extraordinary amount of virtual power plant work. And it wasn't just rate design. A lot of folks like Octopus Energy or others came in and actually control your thermostat. And you get a discount for letting them do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you think about, there's always a range. Some people are going to shy away from that level of partnership with their retail electricity provider. And others are going to say, well, look, if I get a cheaper rate, then I'm happy to have a partnership. But I think that the days of us having a rate tariff that provides that sort of behavioral signal, I think are behind us. I think today you're going to have forward price curves every single day. And the time at which the grid is predicting you're going to have the cheapest rates with the most clean electrons available will change every day. (laughs) Jigger, you can't just drop a bomb like that at the beginning of a conversation. That makes me want to go off and do a whole different topic. (laughs) Talk about that for an hour. We need a series. We need a series of conversations. Apparently. Apparently. All right. Well, let's just kind of stay focused here because there's so much to talk about. I want to talk for a minute about the kinds of grid services that VPPs can provide. And in theory, who can provide them? And who can provide them too? Because there's a bunch of different arrangements or participation models in the jargon under which VPPs might interact with the power grid. Some of them exist today and some of them don't and won't without some regulatory support. And so we need to get into all those details in a little bit. But just to begin with, for those who aren't familiar with VPPs, I'll just start with a few examples. First, there's demand flexibility, which we were just talking about. So that's just turning down or turning off power demand when the grid is stressed in order to avoid blackouts or just even to do peak shaving, reducing the need for additional power at times of high demand to avoid having to start up a fossil fuel peaker plant, for example. Demand flexibility can also work the other way, increasing power consumption when the power is cheap and abundant, which would help grid operators avoid having to curtail excess solar and wind, for example. 
But so far, soaking up excess power is a less common function of VPPs. And then there's the supply side, where VPPs can supply power back to the grid in exchange for lower rates or discounted equipment or flat fees or rewards or whatever. And it seems to me that of these two strategies, sort of demand flexibility and supply, demand flexibility should be the easiest thing for VPPs to do. I mean, it's a lot easier, technically speaking, than supplying energy back to the grid. But most of the stories that I read about VPPs are about providing supply services, not demand flexibility. And I wonder about that. Do you think that's reflective of the state of the actual market, or is it just more a reflection of what journalists want to write about? Well, certainly, I think that there are a lot of demand flexibility only programs that have been around for a long time that journalists don't write about. I think, as you know, the rural electric co-ops in this country have controlled water heaters for decades. The New Hampshire Electric Co-op, I think, controls 4,000 water heaters on its co-op and has since, I think, 2004. Many other co-ops around the country have done the same thing for years and years and years. So those kinds of demand flexibility programs are, frankly, a grid resource that the rural electric co-ops have been controlling for many years using ITRON or Converge or some of these other software packages or hardware packages. Mm -hmm. So I do think these have been around for decades. And certainly I'd say like Walmart stores, particularly like in California, have long basically shut off every other light in the store, part of demand flexibility programs. And so that is something that has been around for a long time. But certainly the sexy stuff that people want to talk about are things like in California where people get paid $2 a kilowatt hour to empty their batteries into the grid as Tesla and Sunrun have had pilots right. on you know, this last year. Or remember the whole ice energy days where right. they were talking about replacing 10 kilowatt or 15 kilowatt package units on people's roofs with ice bears and ice cubs and all of that stuff. So, I mean, that has been, I think, the sexy bit. But I would say that the part that I think is needed today right away is the part that really turns on and off loads. I think that there is some fairly easy ways to put power back into the grid that's largely going to be from batteries, from solar plus battery storage projects. But I think that version 1.0 that I see scaling at gigawatt scale, frankly, in 2023, is going to be turning on and off loads. And I do think that we should be very cognizant of that. And part of the reason that that's happening is for a couple of reasons. One is this integration of EVs. But the other piece of it is we do have a distribution transformer shortage, not because we have a shortage, to be clear. We make the same number of distribution transformers we've made for many, many years. But because a lot of utilities prefer to solve the EV and load growth challenges by increasing distribution circuits instead of pursuing VPPs. Mm -hmm. And so demand for distribution transformers is through the roof. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the producers of distribution transformers are like, is this temporary or is this permanent? Should I really increase uh -huh. all of my capacity right now? Or should I like push the utilities to just do more virtual power plants? And so I think you're starting to see utilities recognizing that they're going to be forced into virtual power plants because – it's a three-year wait to get a distribution transformer. Also, it feels like state utility regulators are getting a little bit shy about constantly raising rates to support the distribution grid enhancements that are needed. Well, after a 14% rate increase across the country last year, you can imagine that we've <laughs> hit 
a psychological rate cap、uh-huh. in this country, where a lot of utilities and their regulators recognize that consumers have really been negatively affected. Energy burdens are an all-time high, and that they really do need to start thinking about the justice implications of the decisions that they're making. Indeed, we do, and it's important to look at the regulatory side. I mean, I think most casual observers think of VPPs as a technology story, and I'm going to explain a little bit why I think it's actually more of a regulatory story than a technology story. But just for context, I'll mention a couple of VPP programs that are happening today. Last summer, Sunrun operated a VPP with thousands of homes in New England that provided 1.8 gigawatt hours from customer homes, solar and battery storage systems, to the grid during peak summer months. It sold that power to the wholesale market that was ISO New England in what it called "quote the first successful bid committing capacity value from home, solar and battery storage systems to the grid." So yeah, it's kind of a new thing. Sunrun also has a contract with California utility PG&E to deliver 30 megawatts of capacity from as many as 7,500 of its Solar Plus battery customers, who receive an upfront payment of $750 and a free smart thermostat in exchange for allowing their batteries to send power back to the grid from 7 to 9 p.m. every day during the summer months. Tesla also has a VPP that you just mentioned a moment ago with PG&E, in which customers with its Powerwall battery packs can sell power back to the grid for two dollars per kilowatt hour. That's around four times the regular retail rate, so that's significant during load emergency reduction events. As of last September, the Tesla VPP had enrolled up to 3,500 homes and 50 megawatts of total capacity in their VPP. Solar provider SunPower has a VPP program which allows a utility to draw power from a customer's battery backup system in exchange for a check or a gift card. From the website, it looks like they have arrangements now with three utilities in the U.S.: National Grid, EverSource, and Southern California Edison. OhmConnect, another company, takes a different approach where they're using smart plugs on individual customer appliances that it can control. During peak times, the company sends a notification to its customers that it wants to shut off one of the smart plugs or turn up the smart thermostat a few degrees, and they'll do it if the customer agrees. The company is credited as being one of the services that helped the California grid avoid blackouts during its heat wave last summer. In exchange, they claim they can save customers money on their utility bills. They also give their customers rewards that they can exchange for swag. Residential battery maker Sonnen has a program called Sonnen Connect that gives customers monthly cash payments for feeding power back onto the grid from their residential battery storage systems as a VPP. Swell Energy aggregates and dispatches a fleet of mostly residential battery systems as a single grid resource. They now have VPP contracts in development to provide a combined 350 megawatt hours of power in California, Hawaii, and New York. A company called Pearl X launched a virtual power plant service in Texas and California last year, which allows customers of multi-unit dwellings like apartments to share solar storage and electrification services on site, including smart thermostats and EV charging, and receive a five to ten percent discount on electricity bills. They can also rely on the battery storage during grid outages. And as we detailed in episode 186 on Vermont, Green Mountain Power has what I think is probably the longest-running VPP using home. Battery storage systems. Customers pay a flat monthly fee on their bill, 
And in exchange, Green Mountain Power will install a battery storage system in the home that backs up the home during an outage event, and that Green Mountain Power can draw energy from at times of peak demand to reduce stress on the grid. They started that project with the Tesla Powerwall, but now they support several other brands of batteries to do the same thing. Finally, there's a handful of programs that involve electric vehicles. Some providers, like WeaveGrid, can control the charging of many vehicles to reduce demand when the grid is stressed, and they can sell that service directly to a distribution utility. Other providers offer vehicle-to-grid or V2G integration so that EVs can actually send some of their power back to the grid. This is considerably more complex, as I said a moment ago, than using a residential battery backup system because it requires vehicles that can exchange power bidirectionally, which very few do. It requires bidirectional chargers, which very few are, and it typically needs the local utility to offer a tariff or other incentive to pull power from vehicle batteries, which few tariffs do. But there are a small handful of pilot projects that are doing it. And there's various projects, including Duke Energy with the Ford all-electric F-150 Lightning, Nuve providing energy management systems to allow EVs to provide power to the grid. And then, of course, there's the V2G play with school buses, which is a great fit for V2G because school buses have large batteries and they're sitting idle most of the time. We've mentioned those several times in previous shows. Most companies that make school buses or operate fleets of them are working on VPPs, most notably Highland Electric. Other companies working on VPPs for electric school buses include Zoom, Voltus, and many others. And then there's companies like AutoGrid that take more of an all-of-the-above approach, aggregating customer-owned energy storage, renewables, and demand response tools to sell energy into multiple energy markets to offer both balancing and flexibility service for stress grids. So I know that was a lot. I just kind of wanted to lay it out there because there's all these different models and different companies doing different things. And that was by far from an exhaustive list. There's a lot of companies participating in the VPP sector. And I didn't even mention the companies that are just acting sort of intermediaries between the structured wholesale markets and various kinds of aggregators. But I just wanted to offer those real world examples to clarify what we're talking about here. So these are all cool and promising efforts and it's great to see them happening. But on the whole, I would really still have to characterize the entire VPP sector as still being mostly in its infancy. We've got these pilot and demonstration phase projects, 20 megawatts here, 50 megawatts there. It's still pretty small potatoes, don't you think? Yeah, look, I mean, I think these pilots are valuable because they get everyone comfortable with the protocols and the software and the integration and all those things. But I think I think what we learned from Europe this last year, and I think what we're embarking on here at the Department of Energy, but also across the United States here, is that we're starting to move to a completely different framework. The framework of all the projects that you described in your question is really one of we need 50 megawatts worth of VPP. We are willing to pay you this much to do it. Now go out and find 50 megawatts of VPPs and sign them up and and get them ready for participation in this program. Mm -hmm. That's what Southern California Edison did with STEM and advanced microgrid solutions and and others that you didn't mention, but are, are even more examples. And, right. and I think AutoGrid has a similar contract with Puget Sound Energy and others. I would say that that structure will never work. I think the way that this is going to have to work is that the VPP revenues, at least in the first phase, have to be found money, meaning that the VPP is not constructed because of the advanced commitment of the utility or the wholesale markets under FERC order 2222, but instead that they are just installing electric vehicles because they want to drive electric vehicles. 
They want to install a smart charger because they want a charger. They are installing a smart thermostat because they want to be able to control their temperature from their phone. They're installing a battery backup system because they have power quality issues in their neighborhood and they want to make sure that they can control those transients with a battery. Once you install these app-enabled appliances, you're fully agreeing to fund those appliances because you want them, not because you're participating in a virtual power plant. And then good point. once you actually then say, okay, as part of the services that we're providing, whether it's the retail electricity provider that says, you know, in order to give you a lower electricity rate, we need to control these appliances, or whether it's the appliance itself that says we're going to give you a $25 a month discount for your F-150 Lightning lease if you guys give us this right to do this thing, or whether it's the battery manufacturer who says we're going to give you an extended warranty if you agree to these services. Ultimately, what we're saying is all of these assets have to be opted in into some sort of VPP-like structure, which is yet to be monetized. Right. And then once you have that regulatory sort of setup, you now have the ability to go to the regulator and say, I'm sitting here in Nebraska with 800 megawatts of assets that I could help you with. Why are you choosing to do something that's 10 times more expensive when you could instead pay me to do something that's much cheaper? And you're putting that money that you were going to spend over here on an inefficient asset into the pockets of consumers. Yep. And those consumers can opt out at any time if they feel like they don't like the way in which we're flexing their load. And so they have full consumer protections. But if they actually want to get all of these extra payments from the grid or from these grid services, then they can increase the amount of flexibility they're willing to participate in. So it's more of a dial than it is an up and down thing. So some folks might say, I only want to participate in an emergency situation. And others say, I'm happy for my assets to be used every day to help control the duck curve. Mm -hmm. So you're saying we need to switch from an opt-in to an opt-out strategy. Yeah. And I frankly think that that is what we have all done. Once you have all of these apps enabled on your phone, you are by definition saying that you want that service such that you can actually control it by phone, mm -hmm. on your phone. Mm -hmm. And I would also posit to you that why would GM create an energy division? Why would Tesla create an energy division if not for the fact that they want to add this feature to their products? Okay, so if we're going to go from an opt-in to an opt-out model, that seems to require some regulatory support. And this is where we kind of have to get into the weeds of the various business models and transactions because there's numerous answers to the question, as maybe the previous examples I just rattled off show, who pays whom for what exactly and how do they pay it? There are very different kinds of transactions that I think are often lumped together under this big VPP heading. And although it gets quite complicated, I think we really need to untangle it a little bit before we can really understand the paths forward. Because I think the way that VPPs are often described in the industry press, one gets the impression that it's a bit like net metering, where a distribution utility pays a retail customer for supplying energy back to the grid, for example. But in many of the business cases involving VPPs, like a lot of the ones I just summarized, the VPP business isn't like that at all. Now, the sector has grown up in recent years, and it's certainly more diverse than it once was. 
But when I was first studying it like six years ago, there was almost no role for a distribution utility in it at all. And there was no way for an individual retail customer to participate directly in it. Nearly all of the VPP arrangements involved an aggregator bidding a service into a structured wholesale market. And there's different kinds of aggregators. It could be a traditional ESCO, like we just talked about, controlling thermostats or lights at a business, for example. It could be an aggregator that only controls EV charging. It could be a distribution utility itself, if they have control of many customer devices. And in a typical case for that kind of arrangement, the aggregator is essentially bidding a demand response service into a wholesale market, that's an ISO or an RTO, because there's no tariff offered by the retail utility that would compensate the customers for offering demand response. Since there is no retail market and there's no tariff, the only way for the aggregator to get paid for that service is to bid it into the wholesale market. And the wholesale market only deals with large chunks of capacity and energy, so the aggregator has to be able to bid in a significant chunk of capacity, like 100 megawatts, to even play in those markets. So in this type of arrangement, you have aggregators that control hundreds or even thousands of resources, HVAC systems, EV chargers, battery storage systems, etc., who transact with wholesale markets. But what's the retail customer's motivation for letting an aggregator control their appliances if they can't get directly paid by a utility through a tariff? In many cases, it's a one-time payment. We saw a few examples of that just a minute ago. You know, you get a check or a gift card or, in the case of Ohm Connect, rewards that a customer can exchange for swag. In fact, for the first many years of its operations, Ohm Connect was basically paying customers the investment money it got from VCs <laughs> rather than from revenues they generated from customers for reducing their electricity use during certain hours of the year because there were no ways for them to generate revenue. There's no other way for them to get paid. Uh, they essentially had to create a critical mass of customers through this, just giving them VC money and invent a market before they could use those customers to create a pathway to getting paid. So this kind of arrangement is chunky, it's rudimentary, in exchange for a one-time payment or a tote bag or whatever, customers let an aggregator control their devices. And the aggregators control many devices at once in response to conditions on the bulk power system, not the local distribution grid. And that's really pretty primitive. And so in reality, a lot of these VPP arrangements that we're hearing about are still working on this model, where an aggregator has to get control of many devices and then bid their demand response into a wholesale market. And that certainly has value. But it's nothing like net metering, and the market participants are neither individual retail customers nor their distribution utilities. And I think that fact has kind of gotten a bit lost in the excitement around VPPs or in the press. I don't think I've seen anyone ever explain that, for example, in the industry press. So do you agree with my characterization, and what are your thoughts about this kind of model? And we're going to talk about the distribution utility interactions in a minute, so you know, don't worry about yeah. that. But it seems like so far there just hasn't been much of a reason for distribution utilities to want to procure VPP services. There hasn't been maybe a motivation or a way for them to get paid. Is that just a question of what's in it for them? Yeah. Like, remember, when we started this conversation, we talked about the fact that, in general, the way this market has worked out has been that people get paid to go out and aggregate VPP services, and then they have a business plan by which they get compensated for providing those services. And that's a lot of what you're, I think, highlighting. Yeah. But I think that what we're moving to is something where the financing company actually is financing electric vehicles, they're financing refrigerators, water heaters, HVAC, sort of heat pumps, they're financing smart thermostats, they're financing solar plus battery storage. And so they're making money through the financing of assets. And now they have 
pick a number, five-year, 10-year, 15-year, 20-year relationships with that customer, depending on the length of time that those assets get financed. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time at which you have that, then the question becomes, when do you actually interact with a virtual power plant company? Because there's no need to interact with a virtual power plant company. You gain the contractual right to interact with a virtual power plant company through the financing paper or through the installing of whatever the asset is. But there's actually no requirement to turn that on. So it's really an option value that you have. So you have this ability to count, well, I have, like, there's about two gigawatts a month of these assets being added every single month. And that number is going to go up every month as more electric vehicles they have purchased, et cetera, et cetera. But let's call it 43% of them actually end up being financed. Great. So now you've got something on the order of 800 megawatts a month that you could potentially get the option value on. And then some of the other assets, people might opt in for a slight discount in the price of the thing or some free gift or swag or whatever it is, as you suggested. Right. And now the question becomes, how does the regulatory battle present itself? Well, first, we talked about there being some sort of soft rate cap that's in place right now. People can't just willy-nilly keep investing $100 billion into the grid and have lower and lower asset utilization and continue to expect people to pay for that lower asset utilization. I mean, that regulatory construct is no longer finding a lot of fans. And it's not really just and reasonable. Right. So then the question becomes... What is the counterargument? The counterargument is, well, this VPP stuff is highly unreliable. And they're not willing to sign up to financial covenants to say that if they don't perform the service as we have contracted them to do so, that they'll actually pay a penalty in the same way that theoretically natural gas power plants are supposed to pay a penalty when they don't show up after mm. they've get paid a capacity payment. And so now you have a construct where the chicken and egg situation gets solved because you've got a bunch of chickens that have gone out there and you have a bunch of one-way options where you have the ability to actually bid this capacity into a market and you have the ability to control these devices because you already have the communications protocols in place through the app. And so it is something that can be calculated. You can go to a regulator and say, for you to ask me to turn on this feature will cost me a minimum of X dollars because I have to notify all the customers we're going to do this. I'm going to have to compensate them for doing this. That's part of the agreement that I have with the customers. And frankly, there is a price to compare mm -hmm. that today between 5 and 10% of the entire cost of the grid is in what we call balancing services. Right. And so you're paying for them anyway today, right now. And a lot of that stuff is super expensive. To have a fast ramping natural gas asset for the duck curve is really expensive. It's a lot cheaper. And I can tell actually through the temperature gradients and when heat pumps turn on and off, et cetera, how tight a home is. So I can tell you which homes are actually good thermal batteries and which homes are not good thermal batteries. And so a lot of this stuff and this big data stuff is already there. And so then the question becomes, do you want to do this where you're actually paying consumers to participate in this market or do you want to pay the owner of natural gas assets like you've done for the last 40 years? And a lot of folks are saying, just from a purely climate justice standpoint, that we'd rather pay homeowners 
to do this service than pay natural gas power plants to do this service. Well, you're making a strong argument for VPPs here, generally speaking, but with respect to the question of sort of aggregators bidding into structured wholesale markets versus retail customers interacting directly with their distribution utility, it sounds like you're basically saying that it's been this way because you've got more of a performance guarantee with a structured wholesale market asset than you do with a customer. You've got more confidence that that asset's going to show up when you need it. You've got more control over the the covenants and the performance, and that translates into lower financing costs, and that just makes it easier for a regulator to approve it. Yeah. Is that basically right? Yeah, I think that's right. But what I'm also saying is that because of the sheer volume of app-enabled assets that are being added to the grid every month, it is entirely possible for that same level of sort of like dependability to be achieved by virtual power plants, which was not the case before. And when you look at the performance of advanced microgrid or STEM or autogrid or others in terms of getting 50 megawatt contracts, going out and convincing customers to allow them to put a battery at their location, and then making sure it was at the right distribution substation and doing all that work, most of those contracts had to be rewritten. Most of those contracts, people had to say, sorry, I wasn't able to achieve the full volume that I promised you I would achieve, and I actually have to go back in and get an expensive contract modification to my contract because mm. I no longer believe I can reach that. I don't believe that that will be the case going forward because you just have this sheer volume of assets that you can opt in into this marketplace. And so now you have the ability to go to regulators and say to them in a confident fashion that we can actually do it. And in fact, we already have these one-way options by which to do it. And I can tell you where they're all located. I can tell you on which distribution circuit that they exist. And so we can actually do pre-planning uh-huh. around my one-way options, around what we want to do. And you can tell me how much you want to charge me in terms of right. failure to produce costs to ensure that I'm going to be there. And we can have a, an honest conversation about all these things, which frankly, I don't think people believe that they could have two years ago. Those are great points. Okay, so before we go on to talk about the distribution utility engagement strategies, I just want to kind of complete the picture of what's happening with the wholesale market engagement. So through Order 2222, FERC is now trying to open wholesale markets to broader participation by aggregators of customer resources, which is my preferred term. I don't like DER. And the resolution of that effort would, in theory, allow this type of interaction to become more sophisticated and dynamic, allowing the participation of a greater variety of devices in more discreet, more dynamic, and just generally less chunky ways. But we're still just talking about the aggregating control of many devices and bidding services into structured wholesale markets here. We're still not yet talking about distribution utilities or individual retail customers. Now, Order 2022 process is dragging on and on. As the utilities and ISOs and RTOs drag their feet and act as uncooperatively as possible because they really don't want to open those markets to customer resources. And if and when for quarter 2222 does get settled and the ISOs and RTOs all open their markets with these new tariffs designed for DER aggregators, we could see all of the above examples expand enormously. But at this point, 
I really don't have a sense of if and when that will happen. Do you? I mean, what's your view on the process of Order 2222? Well, let's be clear about what Order 2222 really says. It basically says that VPP should be treated the same as natural gas peaker plants in the wholesale market. Right. You could imagine the firestorm of conversations that that sets off. And not unlike the clean power plan, which got similarly derided back in the 2015 timeframe from the Obama administration, when that clean power plan got launched back then, it was the first time that many state energy offices and state regulators heard that solar and wind were as cheap as they were. <laughs> they didn't actually know. That's a fair point. Right. And as a result, Oklahoma is now one of the top wind states in the country. I mean, it all came out of the fact that the Clean Power Plan forced them to look at the data. Right. And I would suggest to you the same thing is happening on the VPP side for FERC Order 2222. Like, I think people really thought this was going to be a panacea and that, like, all these things were true. But in fact, what it is, is it's an opening, an invitation for a conversation. And when you look at what's happened, like Voltus signed up thousands of thermostats in Ameren's territory. MISO said, hey, we need wet signatures for every one of those things. They're like, what are you talking about? And MISO yeah. said, oh, yeah, you're right. We're being unreasonable. We're going to drop that requirement. Okay. But like the thing is, is that that is going to keep happening. And that is exactly how this works. And I think you know that, that for the next five or six years, we're going to have a whole bunch of back and forth where people are going to get educated. And some of the markets have moved more quickly. The California ISO, the New York ISO, and PJM have moved more quickly with pilot implementation of the program. Yeah. Which is great. And I think PJM has said you can aggregate up a minimum of 100 kilowatts per node to bid into that node which is also great. Okay. I also think that what you're going to find is you're going to start seeing a bunch of analyses coming out saying actually what VPPs do is physically create a cap on wholesale prices in the PJM. What's going to happen over time is remember, this is not just load shifting. It's also, for instance, backup natural gas generators that Enchanted Rock owns. Mm -hmm. and other type of assets. So at some point, you can imagine that so many resources will get turned on once power prices reach $700 a megawatt hour, $800 a megawatt hour, that you start to see some sort of like soft cap come in where people are like, oh, wait a second. I can't charge $2,000 a megawatt hour anymore during these emergency events because there's so many VPP assets that have been soft opted in to all of these programs that are dialed in for emergency circumstances where when it makes sense, they all just get turned on and participate. And there is that crossover point. Clearly in California, it works at $2 a kilowatt hour. I mean, Sunrun, I think, was offering people free batteries to take advantage of this at $2 a kilowatt hour. I think in Puerto Rico, you're looking at 50 cents to a dollar a kilowatt hour being the market price. And Luma has said a couple of times that a dollar a kilowatt hour is something they can afford in Puerto Rico to prevent these sort of outages. So there's a couple of data points there. Yeah. And when you look at the wear and tear on the battery for a dollar a kilowatt hour or 50 cents per kilowatt hour dispatch in the PJM, it happens so infrequently that the wear and tear is pretty light mm -hmm. on the battery, but plays a huge role in saving billions of dollars for all consumers, because as you know, when a clearing price goes up, all consumers pay that clearing price. 
So if you're going to reduce right. that clearing price, it really sends shockwaves to the market. So what I would suggest to you is that take a more expansive view of this. And really what FERC Order 2222 is doing is forcing everyone to come to grips with the fact that Pat Wood set in motion during the FERC processes of 2004, this regulatory safe harbor of 15% backfeeding into any distribution circuit in the grid being totally safe without asking anybody for permission. Mm -hmm. And so you now have this situation where all of this confluence of events is going to result, I think, in regulators going, wait a second, like, this is real now. And the last thing I would say to you on this topic, though, is how big this is. And I think people just have a hard time just like imagining how big this is. When you think about one gigawatt of home batteries being installed, and you've got, let's call it two hours, four hours of backup there, then you're talking about two gigawatt hours, four gigawatt hours worth of backup. Fine. In 2030 alone, if 50% of all cars are going to be electric vehicles, which is, I think, every prognosticator now believes that we're on track to, to reaching in the United States, that will be 800 gigawatt hours of batteries in cars shipped only in 2030 alone. Hmm. Only in 2030 alone. And so I just think the magnitude of this is unfathomable by people who've been working on VPPs for 40 years. Yeah. Like this is a tsunami. There is no way that regulators and ISO and RTO operators can ignore the sheer quantity of batteries on the largest commodity supply chain in the world that doesn't feature storage. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a great point. And so I just think that this is going to happen. And now the question is, how is it going to happen? And are we going to make sure the payments go to justice communities? Or are we going to make sure the payments go to people who are buying Tesla Megapacks? Yes. And I'm going to get to that point in a minute, because I think that's where the distribution tariff type interaction really comes into play. But one more form where VPPs can participate in structured wholesale markets that I think we really have to address before we move on is in the so-called ancillary services market, where providers, which are usually big power plants, provide things like frequency and voltage regulation and inertial response. Those are super geeky topics that we are not going to delve into today, but those who are interested can listen to episodes 20, 39, 55, 71, 126, 128, 139, 153, and 174. <laughs> anyway. Well, and what I would say to you in those markets is that in the PJM, at least, those markets have been flooded and fully satisfied with batteries. Right, which is what I was just going to say. I mean... These services are bid into structured wholesale markets. This is still not a market where VPPs are interacting with distribution utilities or retail customers. But although DER aggregators can meaningfully compete or could meaningfully compete in the ancillary services market, my sense is those markets are very thin. I remember seeing a study some years ago that suggested that just 100,000 EVs connected to chargers in California could completely saturate the frequency regulation market on KISO, yeah. if I'm remembering that correctly. That's right. And, and although I think DER aggregators absolutely should have access to the ancillary services market, according to EPRI, the total market value today of ancillary services is only around 3% of the energy market value. So 
it may be profitable for DER aggregators to participate in it, but it's kind of small potatoes compared to just buying and selling kilowatt hours. So I don't see a lot of growth opportunity there, especially not when DER aggregators are competing with potentially every other power plant on the system. But what is your outlook on the ancillary services aspect for VPPs? I'm not counting that as a major revenue source for for virtual power plants. I think in general, look, the way this is going to work in general is that people are going to get compensated through lower electricity bills for participation. So you could imagine a dial that people dial into and the dial says all the way to the left, please do not dispatch me unless it really truly is an emergency. Right. And then there's a dial all the way to the right says dispatch me whenever it's economically favorable for me. I want to save as much money as possible. Right. And for those people, I think that Remember, the balancing market is pick a number like 5 to 10% of the whole market. I think it's probably closer to 10 now. And so when you think about what that means, that's how much money there is to share to provide those services, which are largely peaker plants. And it basically allows you to allow demand and supply to always equal each other. Mm-hmm. In those markets, it depends on how many people opt in to the dial all the way at 100 and how many people are marking the dial only at emergencies. If only a small number of people dial that all the way up, well, they're going to get the vast majority of the benefit. Yep. And so it could be meaningful. It could be a one-third reduction in their electricity bill. Uh, That's not small potatoes. And for other people who can't be bothered... That's fine too. But remember, there's also like what Florida Power and Light's doing is they're saying, we'll pay for the level two charger in your garage at $35 a month. You get basically unlimited charging for very, very cheap. And for four hours a day, we're going to not let you charge. Mm -hmm. And if you absolutely need to charge during those four hours, hit this little red button, we're going to charge you 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Right. Which is probably the price you would pay at a public DCFC anyway. So. That's right. right. So that's yeah. not terrible. Like, right. like, I mean, if you get a limited number of miles at $35 a month in your household, that's a big savings for a lot of families. Sure. All right. Well, let's move on now and talk about the retail distribution utilities, because I think, again, this is what most folks imagine is on the other end of a VPP transaction. Right now, I know of a small handful of utilities that offer retail tariffs, like a time of use rate, for example, that results in a rudimentary form of demand flexibility. And as we saw in a few of the examples I cited earlier, in this type of arrangement, the customer's compensation for participating might take the form of some kind of a fixed monthly or an annual payment or a fixed bill discount, or in the case of a time of use rate, a per kilowatt discount or something of that sort. But even in these examples where the VPP is getting paid for participating by a distribution utility and not bidding into a structured wholesale market, the main type of seller in these markets is still the aggregator. It's not the retail utility customer. Even in the aforementioned example where PG&E has set up these bilateral contracts with Sunrun and Tesla to allow customer storage devices to send their power back to the grid, Sunrun and Tesla are acting as the aggregators, and they are the entities doing business with PG&E, not their retail customers. Or in some cases, the utility might actually be acting as the aggregator and controlling the devices, which is an example you just cited. So I think there's three main types of 
transactions in this arrangement. The first one, there's a customer reducing their power demand to reduce stress on the grid, and that can take the form of just reducing the total amount of energy that needs to be generated at that moment, and it can be a kind of power quality management service, effectively an ancillary service on the distribution grid, if you will. There's the customer shifting load in time, for example, delaying their EV charging to the middle of the night, and then there's the customer providing energy back to the grid, which might be coming from their rooftop solar system or their own battery backup system or even their EV. So these are actually fairly similar to the ways that VPPs participate in structured wholesale markets in that you have aggregators controlling many consumer devices, only the aggregator is getting paid by the distribution utilities. So here you have companies like OhmConnect and WeaveGrid acting as aggregators and controlling many home appliances or EV chargers, selling their services to distribution utilities. But again, the retail customer's compensation for participating is usually something very simple, like an annual payment or a bill discount. There's not a dynamic tariff under which customers can respond directly on demand to a local utility's grid conditions. Load shifting is typically done through a time of use rate, and for EVs, there might even be like a dedicated EV rate. There are in a few progressive states. There are actually quite a few of those, but as far as I know, at least outside of a few little pilot projects, they're all pretty static. They're not dynamic. They apply to fixed intervals of the day for fixed months at a time. They cannot be used by a utility to actively and dynamically shape the load. And as for customers providing energy back to the grid, like in a V2G application where an EV pumps electricity back to the grid, I've only heard about one or two pilot tariffs in the United States and a small handful of programs that are not based on tariffs, but that give the customer some other sort of compensation, like a free EV charger in exchange for letting the utility control it. So even in these cases, we're still not really talking about dynamic transactions between retail customers and utilities, are we? Yeah, look, I think in this idealized world, there's a lot of people who really want homeowners to care a lot about their electricity usage and their bill and their demand flexibility and all these things. I think we all have to assume that most homeowners really don't care and don't want to be involved. They don't want to have to think about it. What They, they don't want, want to get into the energy trading business. Yeah, exactly. What they want is a more affordable energy bill. And people have to give them options for more affordable energy bills. And I guess what I would say to you is that I think the place where I would look to for real leadership is in the CCAs. Interesting. The community choice aggregators, who frankly have done almost nothing at all. And I'm disappointed in them. But I agree. But I keep working with them and they keep promising me they're going to do more. But if you talk to our friends in East Bay and you say, hey, how many people need to dial up the VPP all the way to the max for you to be able to cover your entire resource adequacy requirements within the state of California or some of these other things and reshape your load curve on a dynamic basis so you can get much cheaper prices from your wholesale power price provider. Now you can actually save money for all ratepayers in East Bay by doing that. And then the question is what percentage of those savings should go to the people who are participating in demand flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation we need to have. But I do think that in general, there will be people who say, yeah, I work from home. My EV actually could be plugged in basically 24 by 7. I'm just unplugging it for two hours to go out and run errands and come back. And I would be happy to participate in V to X programs and all these other things. And I think that in general, because of the way our apps work, 
people like WeaveGrid and others can tell the CCA that this person owns a vehicle that has this capability. Which, weirdly enough, is a very difficult thing for them to establish. <laughs> I mean, I've worked in this sector for a while, and like it's a constant hurdle. It's like, well, the DMV doesn't really have to tell anybody anything, and the regulator doesn't really know, and the utility doesn't know, and nobody has a way to find out even where the EVs are. It's pathetic. Well, but I think WeaveGrid does know. Like when I've talked to- WeaveGrid knows, yeah. As an aggregator, you bet they yeah. do. Yeah, and they also get a lot of- data from GM and Ford and Tesla and others. And so sure. so I do think we are headed into an era where that data is available. And then the question really becomes, how do you use it to help justice communities achieve a lower energy burden? And how do they get a preference? Now, they don't have to participate. Like they might say, look, I don't want to participate in these programs and that's their choice. But right. for those people who do want to participate, we need to figure out a way to educate those consumers and make sure that they actually get first dibs on all this new yeah. revenue. That is yeah. part of the president's Justice 40 initiative is that just because folks are generally low information, as you know, 80% of all rebates go to wealthy ratepayers, yeah. that we shouldn't allow this to continue to happen because of information asymmetries. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of ways to solve this, but I think we all need to recognize that what we're describing now is completely possible on a technical basis. The software is ready, the hardware is ready, and the consumers already are buying appliances that have this capability embedded in them. Right, and to the extent that we're working through aggregators, everything you just said is true. And I totally agree with you. It's also true that there's a huge amount of value that can be captured here with existing technology that can provide a lot of benefits, especially to EJ communities and so on. And maybe it's just my personal hang-up that I'm so fixated on individual customer interactions with distribution utilities, you know, at a retail level. Maybe that's not as important to the market or to the evolution of this vision as I think it is. But I just want to make the case for that to kind of wrap this conversation up. Because as I've tried to explain today, this very sophisticated, dynamic role for VPPs is still out there, but it doesn't really exist yet. In this arrangement, individual retail customers would respond dynamically to signals from their distribution utilities for responding on demand to grid conditions and get paid under a bi-directional real-time tariff. So in this model, customers would get paid both for reducing demand and for providing power back to the grid, so both the demand and the supply side. Yeah. These could even be micro or nano transactions, like reducing an entire household's demand by, say, 100 watts in response to a signal from a utility. And in an extreme version of this vision, a utility could, for example, ask a home energy management system to reduce a home's power consumption by a tiny bit just to help the utility manage things like voltage sag out at the end of a distribution feeder or something like that. Another aspect of this hypothetical market that has often been touted but still does not exist is that these microtransactions could even be executed on a blockchain in order to minimize the transaction costs. I'm kind of indifferent about how it's done, but we discussed this kind of model way back in episode 20 with Eric Gimon. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. I know. 
not only would this type of arrangement offer a much more targeted, optimized, and discreet way for VPPs to act as grid resources, it would also be more economically efficient because instead of a utility having to wonder, for example, if the value they're getting from a VPP is worth the flat payment they're giving to participating customers or vice versa, which is a real uncertainty for them, every single action between a VPP customer and the utility in this vision could be individually priced such that the value is clear to all parties. So that's what I was referring to a moment ago. Like you could actually know if I do this thing, then the utility pays me that. It's obviously a value for both of us and there's no doubt about it. Jeff St. John, a terrific energy journalist who I've cited many times in the show notes of this podcast, called this vision a platonic ideal for VP <laughs> integration. And I love that. And I got to thank Jeff also for helping me with the research for this particular show. It was very, very helpful. And so as far as I know, there's only a couple of utilities that even offer bi-directional retail tariffs, or for that matter, even unidirectional retail tariffs that will reward a customer for reducing their power consumption on demand. But the kind of arrangement that is often talked about in the press, like a V to G arrangement where an individual retail customer could get compensated directly by their local utility for allowing the utility to draw power from, let's say, the battery in their EV or their home battery storage system, let alone the sophisticated demand shaping techniques I just mentioned, which really, I think, would give you a much stronger lever if optimizing the whole system is what you're trying to do really don't exist yet, not in this country, although there are a few pilot projects like that in Europe. So what are your thoughts on this platonic ideal that I'm laying <laughs> out here? I mean, is this, is this kind of dynamic, discrete sophistication a goal that we should be working toward for VPPs, or is that just too much, too extreme? We can realize the majority of the value of VPPs via these more rudimentary, less dynamic methods like the ones involving structured wholesale markets. Well, let's start by saying that I work for the Department of Energy, so on a geek factor, the Department of Energy is at a 10. So sure. I think it likes all sorts of platonic like ideals. <laughs> um, and so I think we're going to continue to invest in that, like we invested in Pearl Street and some of the other software platforms that can actually do this kind of thing. But I do think that we have to be honest with ourselves about how markets work and how consumers work. The vast majority of consumers are in index funds with Vanguard with very low cost structures. <laughs> Okay. And what that yeah. means is that the vast majority of consumers are going to take a 10% discount on their their electricity bill in exchange for a certain amount of participation in these programs. Yeah. And so that is going to be the most popular option that people pick. And then there are some people who are going to say, you know what, I got two F-150 Lightnings in the garage. I've got a full V to H vehicle to home set up in there. I've got a power wall in there. I've got all these other things. And I'd like to go for the gusto. I'd like to do all these things. And some of those people may not want to wait for signals from the utility, but instead they have some sort of automated service where they work with somebody and that service gets 10% of the take for sending the signals and doing a lot of the automated work and 90% goes to the homeowner. And then there's other ones where folks get to do their own day trading. Right. And they can do that stuff. And I think that's fine. But I do want to make sure that you have a clear appreciation for the M&V side of this. Okay. Like I think the M&V side of this, measurement verification side of this, on the system level is actually quite robust and quite amazing as Matt Golden and some other folks at Recurve and others have shown. Yep. The M&V around exactly who saved 100 watts when 
on demand flexibility is very hard. Yes. It's a lot easier if you're dispatching power out of your battery to say that I did or I didn't. And so I just want to make sure we're being crystal clear about which measures are capable of day trading and which measures are currently not capable of day trading. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but in all things, I just think we should be very clear about figuring out what our end goal is. And to me, our end goal is not to help the person who is just so fascinated by this. Like, you know, those folks in the electric vehicle side or the plug-in hybrid vehicle side, they're called hypermilers. Right. And they're able to do stuff. I think they're awesome. I love them. Do I think every single driver should become hypermiler? No, not really. And so I just think we should be very cautious about our aspirations of where we think the mass market's going to go. Right. So from a consumer perspective, from a customer perspective, I think everything you said is absolutely true. I think the real value of this platonic ideal that I'm laying out there with like a super dynamic retail level interaction is that it gives you a way to get even deeper into the optimization task. And really, as you point out, a thing that has stood in the way of realizing this vision of a very dynamic sort of VPP that goes all the way out to the end is that the basic infrastructure you would need to enable it doesn't exist. Like there's no there's no standard, as far as I know, by which a utility could send a signal to a customer's device asking for a service. Home energy management systems barely exist. Devices are not set up to respond to signals. That whole layer of infrastructure doesn't really exist yet on our distribution grids. But it could, and if if it did, it would be massively easier to optimize everything that we're talking about here. Uh, like appliances could be equipped with Wi-Fi and DR capability, like the thermostats, but we could do that for every appliance. So I think we're already there. I mean, obviously, again, within reason. So we are already there in terms of Tesla being able to take all their power walls, aggregate them together and respond to a signal in real time. Like that is possible. And they already do that with their mega packs. So doing that on a distributed basis with their power walls to me is not a big step here. Like I think I, I think they could actually set it up that way. I think the same thing is true with EV charging. I think that we absolutely can say to people that we can turn on and off charging based on an algorithm, you know, based on the fact that we know that these particular cars are already above 50% charged and therefore they have turned on this ability because they know they can get home safely and all those things. Right. And so there are certain things that actually could be tied directly to real-time markets today and the hardware and the software are already in place to do that. So in those cases, you've got an aggregator like Tesla or whatever responding to an open ADR signal, something like that? Sure. But also under FERC Order 2222, there are open signals already that that natural gas peaker plants are responding to. Right, right. Well, let's talk about what's been holding VPPs back from widespread deployment. I mean, you've identified a number of the market issues, but I think there's also a really important regulatory side to this. As I think is probably self-evident at this point, I think the main barrier here is actually a lack of suitable tariffs on which to make a business case. I mean, at the distribution utility level, as I said a moment ago, there's almost no distribution utilities offering bi-directional tariffs that will directly compensate a retail customer for letting the utility use their behind-the-meter assets with the exception of the few case studies I listed. So there's really no business case for that model, and that's a regulatory failure at the state level. Equally, Distribution utilities have thrown up a number of impediments to this model where VPPs might pose competition to them. 
And the tariffs that do exist are not workable for various kinds of customer resources, nor are they consistent across utilities, which makes it a very balkanized market in which it's very difficult for them to participate. So even the structured wholesale markets for VPP services are often quite limited. Like you can bid frequency regulation some, but you can't provide energy or demand response in a broad sense or whatever. So that's a regulatory failure only at the federal level. So if the lack of VPPs is first and foremost a regulatory failure, which I think is going to be my assertion here, then what I want to know is how are we going to correct that? Because until we can correct the regulatory failures at the state and federal levels, then I think we're going to be stuck in this world of pilot projects that just rewards customers for participating with modest payments or tote bags. And the huge potential benefits that are being touted for VPPs will remain unrealized unless, again, of course, unless for quarter 22, 22 corrects that eventually. So well, if the answer to my question is to win over NARUC, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to see that resolution. <laughs> oh, Chris, come on. You have little faith. Look, I think... Oh, very little. <laughs> look, I think we are in a very unique time. I think we are in the exact same time that we were in 1979 when everyone decided all at once that they needed to add air conditioning to their homes. I think that you will see an electric car in almost every garage... One of their many cars will turn electric by 2030. Mm -hmm. That is a historic amount of load growth. And every electric utility sees it coming. Every single one. Yeah. And every single automaker and battery manufacturer is ramping up as a result. Yeah. So I think something is different today than was the case for the last 30 or 40 years. So I think that part's point number one. Point number two, I think you and I both know that everyone agrees that if we solve this load growth problem with the exact same solution that we used in 1979, that it will possibly double electricity rates. Can't have that. And no, I mean, it's unacceptable. It's just yeah. simply unacceptable, particularly at a time when you have FERC Order 2222 and these thousands of pilots that are proven that you could do it more intelligently. Sure. You separately have a venture capital community that has gone all in and created all the solutions. And yes, the software is at, pick a number, 3.0 and needs to get to 8.0. But I would suggest to you that 3.0 is perfectly fine for the markets of today. And they'll get to 8.0 by pick a number, let's call it 2029. So I think that we are all there. So now the question becomes, what are the biggest drivers of forcing Nehruk and the regulators, the governors, and the utilities to all come to a conclusion that is consumer-friendly. I'm on the edge of my seat. And the answer is that we have to have all this latent opt-in capacity. If they don't have the latent opt-in capacity, then I think people win that say that like, well, but you're never going to get enough people to opt into this. But mm. if you're able to have gigawatts and gigawatts of latent opt-in capacity, which is what Tesla Energy is doing, what GM Energy is doing, what a lot of these financing platforms are starting to do, et cetera, then you end up with a solution to the chicken and egg problem because you say, actually, we have the contractual right to obligate this many gigawatts. Yeah, And the fact that you are not allowing this many gigawatts to monetize this means that you are not serious about justice communities. So you're saying that 
through the various methods we're talking about here, and including the work of the good folks at the Loan Programs Office, you're going to build such a tidal wave of latent capacity that's just waiting to be used that regulators are essentially just going to have to capitulate and find a way to enable it with VPPs. Not just regulators, but all of the consultants that have been holding us back. You know the regulators Mm. are like one body. I don't think that they are independently sort of anti-VPPs. Whether it's ICF Consulting or Synapse or E3 or all of these groups who basically are like, ugh. It didn't work. It can't work. It da 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 whatever. This is why. We can't get enough people to sign in. Clear result. Franklin Energy. I think all of these folks are starting to turn the corner. Every one of them is like, wait a second. We can make more money by being on this side of this argument than on this side of this argument. Right? (laughs) You're making me really glad I don't have sponsors right now. But that's how this works. Like, I mean, today, when you look at what Butterfly Energy is doing or Franklin Energy is doing or Will Dan or all these players, they're all going, wait a second. We're working with all these small businesses. We've been paid by the utilities to market these rebate programs to small businesses. You're saying that we might be able to get some latent revenue if we actually have this contractual term in our contract? We'll start adding that to all of our contracts. Why not? Mm. Why wouldn't Mm -hmm. we do that? And so you're starting to see a real light bulb go off in every single person's sort of business plan. And once you align capital and equity interests with doing the right thing, that's what enables the tidal wave. I'm not asking people to do the right thing. I'm saying do what's in the best interest of your equity shareholders. Yeah, and customers. Absolutely. And so now folks are all aligned. And that's why I think this time is different. Not only do you have the crisis that is the slow-moving crisis that we all see, but you also have the rate pressure, which is really overwhelming politically. And then you have this real focus that the president, I think, has brought on justice. And people are like, yeah, why don't we do the right thing by these people? Yeah. And I think all of that is coming together such that as Hugo Victor Hugo has been credited, but I'm not sure he said it. It's an idea whose time has come. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you've made a very compelling case here, Jigger. And in fact, I can honestly say that you've somewhat changed my mind about some of this stuff. That's is, saying a lot. I mean, I've known you for many years. You don't change your mind that often. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. But you really have. I mean, I think this focus on the customer side of it that you're bringing is helping me to see things from a different angle because I've been I've been so deep in the weeds for so long on the regulatory stuff and I think maybe that's given me a bit of tunnel vision because I can see the opportunity that's out there if we could just get these regulatory barriers out of the way to create just this massively orchestrated and in many ways self-orchestrating system that would be so easy to optimize and so easy to deliver value to everyone if we could just overcome some of these regulatory barriers. I think you've made a very strong case for why even with existing tools and methods and regulations and rates, we can really do a lot to bring more VPP participation onto the grid. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been a really interesting conversation. Before you go, Why don't you tell our listeners briefly about what the Loan Programs Office does and (laughs) how solution providers can access your loan facilities, because I know that's a part of this picture. Yeah. Look, the Loan Programs Office sits here to help people commercialize their technologies. There are a lot of technologies that, that really cannot raise debt because they're too new. 
They're too different. They're not risky. I mean, from a technology standpoint, as we've just discussed, many of them have been piloted a thousand times, but they're not really commercial in that sense. And so Loan Programs Office had about $40 billion of loan authority when I got here with the Inflation Reduction Act. We've added an extra $100 billion of loan authority to our existing programs and then added a new one, the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, which is helping to repurpose existing systems and letting us switch coal and natural gas plants to more useful purposes. Right. But part of what we've done is we figured out under the secretary's leadership how to aggregate up ten and fifteen thousand dollar loans into billion dollar aggregations and get them access to the lowest cost financing. And that is really where we play a big role in VPPs. Like Barbara Einrich passed away last year, the nickel and dimed author. As she used to say, it's expensive being poor. Yeah. So instead of these folks being forced to pay 30% interest for basic appliances when they break and also subprime auto loans, we have the Mm -hmm. ability to help them get affordable loans for stuff that they have to buy and give them access to these additional revenue streams within VPPs. You know, I never really thought about the loan programs office as being a facility for individual customers. I always thought of it as mainly oriented toward service providers and businesses. Well, it is certainly what we have done in our history, but we're changing that. And so it's good to, it's good to be at the forefront of uh, really being able to help consumers do the right thing and get paid to do it. You betcha. So where do customers go if they want to access these facilities? Well, the loan programs office is easy to find. You just email us at lpo at hq.doe.gov or or uh, search on your favorite web browser, DOE LPO blog. And we write a lot of pieces every week where every time we get a new insight or a deep question that we can't answer, we figure out the answer and we blog about it. So we're excited to hear from you. And we're adding something on the order of 1.4 new applications a week. So we're excited to see people. Wow, that's great. And as always, interested listeners can go to the show notes for this episode and see all kinds of links in there that are issued by your office and other resources that will help people understand VPPs and how they can participate. And with that, I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Jigger. It's really been a pleasure to finally get together with you on this podcast and hear some of your thoughts. It's been an enlightening conversation. Well, look, I mean, it's always been a dream of mine to be on your podcast. (laughs) I have now fulfilled my dream, and I could sleep easy tonight. (laughs) Well, you're very kind, and I appreciate your longstanding support and encouragement of the show. It's been important to me. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. That was Jigger Shah speaking with us from Washington, D.C. Jigger's perspective on VPPs, and especially the data he cited, really did change my mind about the potential for VPPs, even in the absence of the platonic ideal I've been waiting to see, which would make it possible for individual customers to use their assets in all sorts of ways, bi-directionally, and get paid by their local utility for doing that. Because Jigger is absolutely right that the market isn't waiting for that, and consumers are deploying energy resources at an astonishing rate. Let's just revisit Jigger's data once more. Right now, every month, the U.S. is adding 2 gigawatts of new load, of which EVs are 0.4 gigawatts on their way to 1 gigawatt, home batteries are another 0.4 gigawatts, and smart thermostats are 1 gigawatt. 
All in, consumers are buying energy resources and appliances to the tune of $10 billion per month. That's a lot of new energy demand, and if we get our policies and technologies and markets aligned, it can all be flexible, which will ultimately reduce the cost of building out generation, transmission, and distribution to accommodate it, and make it that much easier to power it all with variable renewables. It's a very exciting prospect, and I hope that the distribution utilities, ISOs, and RTOs, and their regulators are looking closely at how they can take advantage of this opportunity. Because Jigger is right, we can't approach all this new load the same way that we did air conditioners by just building more grid capacity. We have to be smart about it, and optimize all the capacity we already have, and will have, if we are to avoid having the transition impose untenable costs on customers. And we absolutely can. We just need to make it a priority. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Ofgem, the UK's energy regulator, is as bullish as the DOE is on the potential for VPPs. In early March, they issued proposals for coordinating smart devices such as batteries, EVs, and heat pumps to use them as flexible loads and as sources of electricity that can be sent back to the grid. The regulator estimates that doing so could save households between 3.2 billion and 4.7 billion pounds a year compared to running natural gas-fired power plants. The government's Energy Digitalization Task Force believes that by 2035, Britain could have the power supply equivalent of three nuclear power plants available just from nearly 28 million EVs. However, those vehicles seem likely to be foreign-made. According to the Financial Times, the UK's car industry is, quote, struggling to ensure a successful transition from making petrol and diesel cars to manufacturing electric vehicles for the mass market, end quote. Britain's reputation as a stable and pragmatic place to manufacture vehicles has been shattered by the 2016 Brexit vote and then by the political turmoil of the Tories last year. Since the 2016 Brexit vote, domestic auto manufacturing in Britain has fallen precipitously to levels not seen since the 1950s, and car manufacturers are wondering whether the UK is still a stable place in which they should invest. Jaguar Land Rover, Nissan, and Toyota, which account for 7 out of 10 cars made in the UK last year, all face crucial investment decisions this year related to EV manufacturing. Jaguar's owner, the Indian manufacturer Tata Motors, is considering whether to build a battery factory in the UK or Spain, while other manufacturers weigh significant investments in their own EV production capacity. If the UK fails to seize this moment, its auto sector could fall behind the rest of the world for a generation. And kudos to Carbon Brief for cleverly connecting the dots between the off-gen proposals and the FT's coverage of the EV sector in their March 3rd daily briefing. Carbon Brief's daily briefing email newsletter has become a valuable resource for me, and you can subscribe to it for free at the link in the show notes. Item 2. As if to underscore that the availability of certain materials is unlikely to pose any sort of limit on the energy transition, as we detailed in episode 194, lithium and cobalt prices have crashed in recent months. As of March 20th, lithium carbonate prices were down about 47% from last November's peak, and down about 40% year-to-date. A recent Reuters report, citing traders and analysts, said the market is set to drop a further 25% by year-end. The price declines were driven both by softening demand in China and by the expectation of new supplies coming online from China, Australia, and Chile. 
However, lithium giant Albermala ascribes China's lower car sales to temporary weakness related to the early Lunar New Year and expects China's EV market to grow 40% this year. Prices for cobalt have also fallen 60% this year, and copper prices have slipped about 18%. Still, prices for lithium are elevated enough relative to historical levels to attract investors and banks to invest in mining and processing projects. And the IRA and IJA bills passed last year are making tens of millions of dollars available to lithium prospectors and processors. Indeed, some analysts are now worried that the price of lithium could fall too far to continue attracting investors and foresee a lithium glut developing by the end of this year. As we mentioned in a recent news item, the increasing popularity of batteries made using lithium, iron, and phosphate, known as LFP batteries, which use no cobalt, is expected to significantly dent the expected demand for that metal. All of this is leading to lower prices for EVs, and that's a good thing, especially after about two years in which EV prices had bucked their long decline curves. But the innovation doesn't stop there. Chinese lithium-ion battery giant Contemporary Amperex Technology Company Limited, or CATL, and Chinese auto manufacturer JAC are now busily commercializing sodium-ion cells, which could displace lithium in EV batteries. Lithium-ion battery chemistries offer superior energy density, but sodium is more abundant, non-flammable, and performs well at low temperatures. And although sodium-ion batteries are more expensive than lithium-ion today because of low volumes and underdeveloped supply chains, BNEF sees a viable pathway for sodium-ion cells to cost half of what lithium-iron phosphate costs today. Within a few years, BNEF believes it's possible that sodium-ion batteries could take enough market share from the lithium-ion batteries to alleviate lithium supply issues. All in all, as BNEF battery expert Colin McCarriker pointed out last August, the auto industry's shift away from cobalt and batteries shows that market forces have a way of working out supply bottlenecks. Item 3. An article published in early March in the Wall Street Journal reinforces many of the points we covered in our recent discussion of the shale patch in episode 191, suggesting that the growth era for oil production from fracked shale does look to be coming to a close. New wells drilled in the Permian Basin, the most lucrative of the shale plays, which spans West Texas and New Mexico, have been significantly less productive than wells drilled prior to 2019. This suggests that the best wells have been drilled, and that the remaining prospects are lower quality. Domestic oil output last year grew at one-third of the annual average pace seen since shale's heyday from 2017 to 2019, and at just half the rate forecasters expected. It still hasn't caught up with pre-pandemic levels. In the Delaware portion of the Permian Basin, Chevron missed its oil production target last year, blaming higher-than-expected depletion rates. Chevron Chief Executive Mike Wirth said the rate of production growth and drilling activity the U.S. shale industry saw a decade ago is, quote, unlikely to be repeated. Investment bank Raymond James Financial estimated in a September report that public producers and private operators in the Delaware hold about 7.2 years of sweet spots and less than 8 years in the Midland Basin, the other major portion of the Permian. ConocoPhillips Chief Executive Ryan Lance expects OPEC to resume its dominance of the global oil trade as a result, saying, quote, The world is going back to a world that we had in the 70s and the 80s. Item 4. 
Nearly two years after Utility First Energy admitted that it gave $61 million in bribe money to Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and top utility regulator Sam Randazzo to support a $1.3 billion bailout law known as House Bill 6 that bailed out their economically failing coal and nuclear plants, a federal grand jury found Householder and ex-Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges guilty in early March of racketeering conspiracy. Listeners to this show will recall that we have chronicled the case in numerous episodes over the years. Household and Borges, who both vowed to appeal the decision, face up to 20 years in prison. Both men remain out on bond. Two other key players, former First Energy Solutions lobbyist Juan Cespedes and Householder political advisor Jeff Longstreth, took plea deals and testified against them. A fifth defendant, lobbyist Neil Clark, died by suicide in March 2021 after his arrest. The U.S. Department of Justice could arrest others who were involved in the conspiracy. To date, neither Sam Randazzo, a close associate of Governor Mike DeWine who appointed him, nor executives from First Energy or First Energy Solutions, now called Energy Harbor, have been charged with any crime. In addition to the implications of the case for the trajectory of the energy transition in Ohio, what some experts find notable about the case is how it revealed systemic political corruption in Ohio, where corrupt activity is treated by elected officials as a routine way of doing business. And finally, item 5 will have a coda to episode 145, our analysis of what happened in the Texas blackout of February 2021 during Winter Storm Uri. As we discussed in that episode, the Public Utility Commission of Texas, or PUCT, reacted to the rapidly disappearing supplies of power by pushing electricity prices by fiat all the way up to their maximum cap of $9,000 per megawatt hour for four days during the storm. Typical market clearing prices in the Electric Reliability Council of Texas market are around $30 per megawatt hour. During URI, prices reached $1,200 per megawatt hour, but the PUCT thought that raising them all the way up to the system cap would bring more generation online. Raising prices to the $9,000 cap and holding them at that level longer than necessary cost consumers $16 billion, according to independent monitor Potomac Economics. Vistra Energy, a major utility in Texas, estimated its URI-related losses at $1.6 billion, and its subsidiary, Luminant Energy, filed a lawsuit challenging the PUCT's orders. The PUCT subsequently lowered the high system-wide offer cap to $5,000 per megawatt hour amid a slate of market changes intended to encourage reliability. But regulators declined requests to reprice URI energy costs, fearing unintended consequences to the market. Which brings us to this March, when an appeals court ruled that the PUCT exceeded its authority when it raised the prices and reversed the commission's orders. The decision will likely be appealed, but if it is upheld, lawmakers will have to figure out how to resolve the pricing issues and possibly require a resettlement of the utility bills, as well as resolve questions about the authority of the PUCT to issue price caps for Texas's energy market. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.